welcome to Hemispheres. Welcome, Tori. Thank you. And welcome, Carrie Jenkins. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, Hi. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, we're um, we're big fans of of your work. We've uh, we've talked about uh, a little bit the philosophy of love and and what it means to each of us. Um, and this podcast is generally generally about how people spend their time and why. This is sort of mm -hmm. the, the impetus of what our conversations just tend to be about. So mm -hmm. I wanted to ask to start with sort of you know, how how you got into thinking about the philosophy of love? Because from my understanding, mm -hmm. you started to uh, study the philosophy of, of mathematics or more technical uh, logic mm -hmm. of uh, philosophy. And then I'm curious if something connected, were you always sort of critical of romantic love uh, when you were young? Is it something that was always with you? Or is it something that you developed in your academic career? Um, just, yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. That process. It's a great question, and you know, I kind of um, it, it it's certainly something. Have I always been critical of romantic love? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> I mean, I I I certainly didn't see lots of you know great examples of it around me growing up, um, and you know, I I was raised by a, a single mom and um you know very kind of uh second wave feminist kind of uh person she was in the the 80s and 90s um and so you know i i i guess the 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 idea of um critiquing romantic love from a, a political and perhaps even philosophical point of view was already kind of in the air for me very early in life but no, not not from a um, an academic point of view until till really quite late in my um, career, you know, relatively speaking. So you're right. I started writing about the philosophy of mathematics um, in my uh, doctoral work, and um, I was interested as well in you know bro more broadly like epistemological questions about knowledge. You know, how do we know things? Um, and metaphysics, you know, what's what's the world like? What's reality like? What's real? Um, and and I kind of got to a, a stage in my, uh, I guess my my career where where it started to intersect with my personal life. Um, in insofar as I you know I'd, I'd started um, being open about being in non monogamous relationships, being polyamorous. Um, and and so people would say things like, you know, that's impossible. You can't be in love with more than one person at the same time. Uh, or if you are, it's not real love or, uh, you know, think, things like that. And um, what I realized in those um, in those moments was that those are very philosophical claims, right? That, <laughs> that something is or is not real love um is is a really deeply philosophical claim and questions about the nature of love you know what love really is um stretch right back into the history of my discipline you know plato was writing about what love is <laughs> a couple thousand years ago um and so uh there there's all this kind of uh history of of discussion about uh, true nature of love like metaphysically what is it really and then there's this very contemporary situation um and, and I, I i started realizing there's a big mismatch between the two right the discipline the history of the philosophy of love has all of this discussion a lot of tools like critical tools ways of thinking ways of approaching the question um and yet the the actual discussions seem to be quite um well, they they were not not responsive to my situation. Let's put it that way. <laughs> right, they did not right. address the questions I wanted to ask, um, and so I I just sort of started smushing those things together and realizing, yeah, there's there's a research project here. Yeah, absolutely, and and this it's it is an interesting uh, experience to have to be in love and to also try and describe what that is and. You know, mm -hmm. we want to rationalize it in some sense, but it, it seems it seems you know bigger bigger than that. How how would you describe the feeling of being in love? Oh my goodness! Well, see, I'm not sure that being in love is a feeling. So 
Let's start oh, there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Nice. I mean, there's, there's lots of feelings that can go along with it. Um, mm. And, you know, one of the things that I pretty early on, I started reading some of the, um, the science, the science of love. So, you know, what's happening in your brain and when you fall in love or um, uh, when you are experiencing that kind of, um, I guess, you know, um, what, what psychologists tend to call limerence, but that crush, crush energy, uh, being infatuated with someone, that kind of feeling. Um, so, and, and, you know, that's, that stuff is very fascinating. Um, what's going on in your brain there actually um, can resemble uh, chemical addictions in certain mm. ways. Very interesting. Um, but uh, is that the same as, as loving somebody? I mean, the, the, my, my immediate suspicion was that we, we, uh, we want to separate out things like that crush or infatuation feeling uh, from anything that's worthy of the name love. Um, and here I'm drawing on, you know, scholars like Bell Hooks who have this kind of uh, critical angle where they say, oh, love is actually really a uh, high bar to, to reach, right? To love someone, you need to uh, to know them. There has to be trust. There has to be honesty. There has to be care. You know, all of these different ingredients that are required for love. And, you know, feeling some kind of way is not going to guarantee that those ingredients are in place. Um, so, so I take I take some of the, some of Bell Hooks's stuff to heart there, and I think this is this is actually pretty important. That you know, love is not necessarily about something we just feel on the inside, um, although it might be accompanied by certain kinds of feelings. And uh, you know, it's not that it's certainly not that feelings are irrelevant. Um, but I I want to say there's um, you know I not not that I'm in a position to to give you a tidy definition of what what love is um but i want to say there's got to be more to it than than feeling a certain way yeah no i i i think that makes a lot of sense and and uh it's it's funny how the language we use sort of um as you've mentioned you know falling in love or mm -hmm. um you know the madness of it for example um mm -hmm. would, would you say that it's it's a choice to be in love? Well, see, we, we have this. So, okay, let me, let's, let's unpack this one a little bit. Um, so I, I talk a lot about uh, romantic love specifically <clears throat> as um, partly socially constructed. So, um, so the biology is real, you know, there is real stuff going on in, in us that is, um, you know, chemically, um, uh, understandable in in our brains and our bodies, uh, and it has this evolutionary history that you know we we need to understand we're animals with this kind of um, scientific uh, reality to us, right? So that's all true. And also, what what else is also true is that when we are trying to understand what romantic love is, we're doing it in a context where our ideas about it are really shaped and informed by um social conditioning social right. social ideas about um you know what it takes to be in love and a really really strong piece of that um social narrative is that romantic love is something that happens to you like a bolt out of the blue yeah you fall in love as if it was a pit in the ground and you were just strolling along one day whoop you fell in oh no yeah right. <laughs> it's like that's how we talk about it that's how we think about it this kind of ma magical thing it just emerges out of nowhere um and that i think um well there there are some things that might happen that way and maybe those those crush feelings of infatuation or or limerence can, can come across that way a bit, right? You know, don't necessarily choose to feel those things. But again, you know, thinking back to what what love is being something that requires a little more than having a crush on someone, um, then you can start to see how actually those, those the more part of love might be something we have quite a lot of control over. So, you mm -hmm. know, how well we get to know someone, um, how much effort we invest in developing a, a real serious like care relationship and bond with them. Those are all things we have a lot of choice in, right? We, right. Uh, maybe we can't choose whether we feel the crush or not, 
but we can definitely choose whether we go on the second date or not. Right. <laughs> and that's the, right. Um, and that those kinds of choices, we're constantly making making a lot of choices in um, in romantic relationships. And there's this sort of tendency to pretend that we're not and that it's all just kind of radically out of control and at the whims of fate and the universe. It's like, no, no, we're, <laughs> we're, that's the, you, we have to take responsibility here. We're making a lot of decisions all the time and we are. We are responsible for for all of those decisions. Um, And actually, you know, online dating has really helped us to see some of that, I think, a bit more clearly. Uh, My my friend and another uh, love researcher that I admire, Mandy Catron, has written about this, but how, you know, when we um, uh, when we think about, you know, fairy stories, you're supposed to just magically meet the, the one. Um, or, you know, every rom-com ever, you know, you stumble into the one, there's some kind of meat cute, you probably hate them at first and all this sort of thing, right? And then whatever, the, the love kind of, uh, kind of uh, materializes over the course of the story. But, you know, real, real life, real life now is that most people I say meeting a partner right now are going to be using online dating. Um, and that's the, just the normal, now probably the normal way to, to get to meet someone. And, at the very start of that process, it's very obvious that you have a lot of control, whether you're swiping left or right, you know, whether you're right. messaging first or messaging back or any of those kind of things. So, you know, the the um, the myth of uh, not being able to c- control uh, romantic love and the myth of not having any uh, agency in those circumstances is getting harder and harder to maintain the more obvious it is that we actually have a lot of a lot of control, a lot of choices here that we are making. Mandy also, Mandy Katron um, is the author of a, um, she, she was the author of this viral uh, column in the New York Times a few years ago called uh, To Fall in Love With Anyone Do This. Um, and it was about this experiment where a psychologist in the 80s was, was bringing pairs of people into the lab to basically see if he could get them to fall in love. Um, oh. He had these these questions, like the set of 36 questions that the, the couples would ask one another and then they would have these conversations and then they would stare into each other's eyes. Um, and, you know, some some of his, uh, one, one of his uh, experiment couples, I think, got married. And, you know, so it was uh, it was wow. an interesting exercise. And Mandy then dug this up and, you know, the, um, a few years ago, uh, tried the experiment herself with a guy she was interested in. And, you know, a few years down the line, they're still together, have a couple of beautiful children. So, um, you know, there's, but her, her take on that was, look, we, we decided to take that step to develop intimacy using this, um, using these, these questions that were developed for the purpose. It didn't just, Mm randomly occur uh, we we made a very conscious and deliberate decision to try to fall in love and it's and it succeeded on that occasion <laughs> ah it's fantastic yeah mm-hmm. so on, the, on this topic of cho- on choice um choice and love do you um you talk a little bit about uh free will and determinism as i think any philosopher does and in our in our mm-hmm. little club we that's one of our go to topics with anything but with regards to love and you know if we're all individual agents you know thinking that we have agency in our in our choices do we um yeah what just i guess what's your personal view on free will versus determinism um first of all oh boy Uh, that's about (laughs) my pay grade i'm just (laughs) just a philosopher of love (laughs) yeah it's a big question i i mean (laughs) Do do you take do you take a stance? I guess a very a very strong stance on that. Typically, I, I mean, you know, in in terms of the metaphysics, my the last time I really kind of thought hard about those kind of questions, um, yeah. I was I was still in the kind of uh, I, I guess broadly compatibilist camp, where I was yeah. kind of willing to accept that we we can still uh, think of ourselves as having free will, even if. Uh, um, a certain amount of what happens in our our bodies and our brains when we're making decisions is is determined by factors that are uh, as it were out of our control. So, um, you know, I I but but I'm you know I'm I don't um, have um, direct research expertise in those areas of philosophy. Yeah. That's just a fairly 
yeah, that's just my kind of uh, intuitive take, I suppose. Right. Yeah, I guess, I mean, with regards to love and relationships, um, is it is it part of the thinking that, uh, that, you know, in this, in the philosophy of love that you want to develop, you've developed is that we could, you know, we have the choices regardless of what you think about determinism. You know, we have choices, like you were saying, we're constantly making these choices and they have real consequences on, on, uh, on, on love, on our relationships and, and how those develop rather than yeah, just accepting yeah. accepting a uh, a doomed uh, you know, relationship <laughs> that's it. yes yeah. <laughs> that's it i'm i'm very I'm, I'm opposed to the doom and gloom of you yeah. know oh i'm <laughs> i'm just not cut out for anything you know nothing's ever yeah. going to work for me i'm also opposed to the opposite the, the fantasy fairy tale of just you know the right. one is out there and i will meet the one and then everything will be happy ever after so those i think are both fictions, they're myths, they're, you know, they're very socially powerful because they do uh, exert really strong influences over us. But yeah, we are always, you know, when it comes down to it, I think we're pretty much in charge of making our own decisions. Um, And the ways that we choose to behave in romantic relationships, um, those don't just impact our own lives and our own connections of course they they do impact those things and people around us but um part of what i'm interested in thinking about with my project is how um our decisions um when you take all of them collectively they all add up to creating the social construct of of romantic love right so that that those narratives about what it is to be in love what that looks like how it's supposed to go they don't just, uh, you know, emerge out of thin air. Um, they are, they're created and constantly recreated by our continuing to tell the same kind of love stories to one another. Um, and those love stories, not just fictional stories, but they're also the stories we tell about our own lives and the lives we want to have. Um, so, so that when I talk about the idea of a, a narrative or a script for, um, romantic love, um, you know, I, I, those things are, um, I'm not saying there's, uh, you know, moustache twirling villains in a dark room somewhere plotting what they're going to impose on the rest of us. But th- those things are constructed by all of us together choosing, like, how are we going to live our lives? And then when we do that, what story are we going to tell about the life that we are living? Right. Yeah, it's it, it makes me think a lot of... Um... Yeah, there's so much, there's so much there, but these, these sort of rules and these rules that everybody's been playing by and these kind of um, cultural contexts that we've all sort of chosen to go along with, it seems to me like there's just a lot of um, conditional love in there. There's a lot of conditions in the traditional uh, view of uh, one must do these things in order to fit in into society or to feel in love. Um, uh, what about unconditional love, uh, Carrie? How how do you see unconditional love? Uh, is that sort of your new mode of operation, or has that always been your mode of operation, or is there some sort of boundaries that need to be placed up to just innately protect ourselves as humans? Um, I'd like to hear how how you think mm-hmm. of this idea of unconditional love. Oh boy. I, I mean, it, that, that's a phrase that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So right. I'm sort of interested to, I guess, to hear more about what you're meaning by it. So some people yeah. will use it to mean something like, you know, uh-huh. I love this person unconditionally as in whatever they do and whatever happens, I can never stop loving them. They will never lose that. I, I unconditionally love them. So that's one kind of notion. And then you know, there's there's another kind of notion in the vicinity where it might mean something like, you know, loving without uh, conditions imposed by society or societal norms or expectations. I wasn't sure which of those you were sort of uh, trying to get at. Right. Yeah. Uh, me neither, maybe. But uh, <laughs> perhaps perhaps more of the first one, you know, just, um, yeah, just this idea of, you know, also with like previous lovers, for example, where does that love really end? You know, does it end because um, there's no longer that social 
um, acceptance of the relationship where there's no longer uh, sort of uh, a very clear idea that the relationship exists or does mm. love per- does love permeate through that regardless of the social um, mm-hmm. you know view on on what that was um, so yeah, maybe it's a blend yeah. of the two yeah that so it, the ends the ends of relationships and the ends of love are really interesting a uh, point to look at i think for a lot of philosophical questions kind of come to a head around these so so um i mean one one kind of way of one kind of way that i tend to approach those those kind of thoughts is um that the, the show, social narrative tells us that if a relationship ends um mm-hmm. that is um uh, firstly the yes the end of love right uh, but secondly uh, a failure right the relationship fails if it ends right. um, and that's that means there was something always wrong with it all along. And, you know, you can probably guess by the way I'm framing this that the, those are also things I'm I'm quite critical of and quite suspicious right. of. Um, so I think it's it's entirely possible for love to exist and be real and good and all of that, and there's nothing wrong with it at all, and it still does come to an end. Um, you know, a relationship can come to an end. People can grow apart and move on, whatever, you know, whatever the notion is, um, however you want to frame it. Um, And so, you know, I think in those senses, yes, love can end or at least, you know, transition into different forms of friendship or acquaintanceship and uh, all of that sort of thing that I think that's a genuine possibility. Um, But uh, the the social norms, the narrative uh, tells us that that's not something that is really possible, or at least not something that should happen. Because if you love someone, it's supposed to be, um, you know, uh, in Shakespeare's terms, uh, ever fixed mark, right? Uh, Right. Looks on tempests and is never shaken and what, you know, so this kind of idea that once the love is there, again, very much in keeping with the idea that it's determined by fate and the universe picks out the one, the soulmate, the twin flame, et cetera, et cetera. Lots of words for this. Um, but, but once it's there, it's there. Of course you can't change it or, you know, ever do anything about your, your fate. Um, and if you're separated from that person, I, I guess you're supposed to just pine away and, uh, die in a corner somewhere right. um so <laughs> and and of course that is actually what happens in in a lot of literature <laughs> you know sure. um so we have we keep telling that story um and and taking it very very seriously and that that is the the romantic story um has it has two two versions right there's the happy romantic story which is the fairy tale happily ever after um, and then there's the tragic romantic story where someone is going to die at the end of the story. And that's, uh, it's just like the worst doom and gloom ever. Um, right. But either way, very, very extreme, extreme scenarios. Um, and, you know, one of the things I'm interested in talking about is how often um, love can actually uh, encompass, you know, the full range of human experience, most of which is not, at either of those extremes it's just somewhere in the middle day-to-day life normal life not not uh, bliss but not tragedy either right those are that's right. what most people's experience of love actually is yeah. um so i know i'm just rambling i've gotten a little far from the question of what do i think about unconditional love but i i guess p- part of my answer that i'm trying to get at here is that the phrase can be associated with some of those um very dramatic and very extreme narratives about what what love is or what it should be um that that i'm a bit suspicious of because i think they're not um they're not representative reality um and they're not even necessarily good ideals to aim at either right thank you yeah th- this is you can the hear story in the background. My, my kitty is yes. meowing a lot today. She's she's got a lot to say. She wants to contribute right. to this conversation as well. <laughs> no, I locked I locked uh, our kitties out, so <laughs> they okay. probably have a lot to say. But well, um, they're, they're having the conversation somewhere else. <laughs> exactly together. Um, this story of romantic love, uh, you know, this social construct, like any kind of social construct or story, is something you know we've developed through our history as humans. Mm-hmm. So. As in your in your studies and trying to learn about about that, you mentioned Plato and sort of you know people 
thinking about this idea thousands of years ago, mm-hmm. you know, what, what lessons or what, how, how do you think that this became the sort of dominant, you know, story mm-hmm. or narrative about love and, and what can we learn from what maybe other cultures or other, um, yeah, other groups of humans and throughout history have thought about love maybe in completely separate ways and in, in ways that you're, you're now considering that we could consider. Yeah. So, um, I mean, one of the things that's, that's quite interesting, if you, if you read Plato's uh, symposium, which is his dialogue that is most centrally concerned with the question, what love is, and just consists of, you know, a series of speeches that are attempts to answer that question effectively, like um, that, that dialogue actually contains one of the, uh, to my knowledge, one of the earliest sources for the, um, the soulmate myth, the idea mm. that, you know, another person could be your quotes, other half um, yeah. in, in, uh, in Plato's symposium, one of the speakers very literally, you know, says that uh, humans used to be these two-headed things with four arms and and four legs, and they were going around together and like you know as as one being. Uh, and then um, you know Zeus got angry and and sort of chopped them in half. And then uh, what love is is this kind of incomplete suffering being trying to find its literal other half. Um, and so you know. That's that idea of uh, it is very old. It's very old. Um, it's the way that it's kind of well, I, yeah, the way that it's gotten itself um, embedded in our contemporary uh, society. And by our here, I mean the one that I've like grown up in, uh, um, in in the UK, and the one that's familiar to me in other contexts, like in Canada, in the US, and Australia, other places, they're broadly um, similar culturally to those places. Um, it's gotten itself really centrally embedded here at about the point where, um, and this is, you know, somewhere, somewhere within only the last couple of hundred years, few hundred years, uh, where something was needed to take over the role in the formation of new marriages or new nuclear families that was previously played by men giving women to other men. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so you get to a certain point in history where what's happening is men, men are giving away their daughters, mm-hmm. right, right. To, to husbands. And this is considered to be perfectly normal because women are property. And then, mm-hmm. you know, you get to a point where people start to hang on, hang on, wait, that's not actually great. Is it? No, that's not great. All right. Um, what are we going to do instead of this? Um, and that's uh, around about that same time is when the idea of love, a love match, being a suitable way for uh, respectable unions to to come about. Um, and so, you know, uh, what happens then is that that the um, the idea of uh, um, romantic love as the kind of nexus between physical attraction or or you know being sort of attracted to someone perhaps emotionally or in other ways is uh, is taken as input and then the output is a stable nuclear family where you've you know you've locked that down everyone else is excluded and now the goal is uh, laundry and and mortgages and and, and children and, and you're both going to die eventually right <laughs> there's a lot of death in these conversations that's how it is um, but so so that that kind of um, that kind of role for uh, for ideas of romantic love is pretty new. Like that's pretty new, and it's pretty localized to that kind of social context. But because that has become the globally dominant idea of what love is and should be, um, we we are now kind of all conditioned to think of it as being very na- quotes natural, um, where natural is you know here really just one of those words that means very familiar uh, mm. and we mistake it for you know meaning something that must come directly from nature um which is another kind of meaning of natural and we even have this one word that kind of shifts us between the two right so this idea that something's natural in the mm. sense of feeling very obvious or familiar and um, there's this kind of slippage that happens where we assume therefore it comes from nature um, mm. So our ideas about romantic love, for example, having to be 
something that lasts forever, being a suitable basis for marriage, being monogamous, uh, you know, all of those kind of ideas that we have. And in, in a lot of contexts uh, still, and until very recently in my own context, the idea that it has to be uh, heterosexual uh, kind of phenomenon. All of those ideas um, get kind of bundled together as uh, as obvious and natural um, but, you know, it, the thing that I think we can learn from um, the course of human history more broadly yeah. is that actually, you know, what, what's natural to humans is that they try all kinds of different strategies for solving any problem, right? right? And this is what's, you know, what's really kind of useful about, um, you know, thinking about the, the biology and the evolutionary history of these things, Um is you know to appreciate that uh, you know that there are lots of different ways that human beings have lived and organized societies and arranged mm -hmm. themselves and um, you know different strategies that we've tried in order to solve problems like well how how to coordinate it, uh, socially amongst ourselves to do things like raise up the next generation and that's a real problem that's a very difficult task <laughs> how to how to achieve it well different times, different places, different societies have tried different strategies. Um, they have not all looked like the uh, monogamous, heterosexual, nuclear family that we now yeah. think of as being natural. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, there's so much more I could say about that, but that's uh, broad brushstrokes. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, fair, and fair enough. I think there's so much to talk about with all of these, uh, <laughs> yeah. these mm -hmm. amazing topics, but we, we appreciate it nonetheless. Um, you know, I wanted to bring up the idea of eudaimonia. It, it's, uh, it oh, yeah. seems to have, uh, you know, taking, taking you, your mind somehow. And it was a concept mm -hmm. that I ran into myself probably 15 years ago. What is it about eudaimonia that sort of struck you, um, mm. to be a, an important philosophical idea as opposed to, you know, we have such a spectrum of things that we could be interested in and, and read. And, but why did eudaimonia stick out to you as such a, as a yeah. beautiful way of looking at things? Ah, it's another really nice question. Um, it's, uh, you know, part of it is the actual word itself. Um, the, the, when I looked into what the etymology of the word is, I, I was, um, it just grabbed my attention. Um, so eudaimonia so it's an ancient Greek uh, word and contemporary translations now tend to uh, go with something like well-being or flourishing, right? eudaimonia. Um, and it's it's often contrasted with kind of simplistic happiness where that's just, you know, feeling good or, or you know, having a um, having things that you want. Or, yeah. So so eudaimonia is things are going well for you in a, some kind of deeper or broader sense than just you feel happy on it particular day um so but but the word itself um it comes from so the root is there's two parts to it there's the eu at the beginning you and that means good same as in euphoria or uh, euphemism it's uh, the same same thing and then daimon which means uh, a supernatural being like a spirit or um in some cases, uh, you know, it could be a deity, but it could just be some more personal spirit, like a guardian angel or something like that. But a, a daimon um, was some kind of supernatural entity. So a eudaimon just meant good spirit. So eudaimonia literally uh, originally meant like good spirited. Um, mm. And I realized, you know, that's that meaning has gotten sort of lost because um, uh, philosophers from Aristotle onwards have pretty much just ignored the etymology of the word and just used it to mean doing well as a human. Um, mm. But I got, I got really caught up in that idea of, uh, of good spiritedness and, and what those, um, what that might look like. Um, and, and uh, what I, what I was doing, and this was, this is in my, my book, uh, Sad Love, which is, um, you know, the, the major project of the book is to try to move us away from the happy ever after idea of of love yeah that's the one <laughs> um and so to, to critique the idea of happiness as as um well in its own terms and also as the be all and end all of of love um so so i i wanted to get something else in place to you know stand in in uh, where happiness 
is often put as the, the goal of a relationship. I wanted to say, no, what about what about seeing the goal of relationships as as eudaimonia? Um, mm. And then I started to think, well, what would that mean? Like in again, like not in Aristotle's world, in my world, what would it mean for right. for a love or relationship to be eudaimonic? Um, and it it just gave me a handle on all of these different senses in which we can have like good or bad spirits um, affecting our relationship. And you don't have to take the spirits talk literally. It doesn't have to be supernatural entities. We can also think about things like the vibe of your community, right? Mm. So (laughs) the vibe of your community could be a good diamond or a bad diamond for your relationship, depending on whether people are supporting you. Um, Mm. But there could also be much smaller scales of daimons, like little voice in your head telling you you're not good enough for this person, right? Mm. That could be a a really harmful, bad daimon for your relationship. So what is it for love to be eudaimonic? Well, there's so many different levels of that, right? There's the little voices in your head. There's the vibe in your community. um, There's how you are with each other, you know, the people in the relationship as themselves, good-spirited or bad-spirited. Um, yeah. And then there's these much bigger things like, you know, global patriarchy. How does that impact my relationship? How does that impact right. how I think about gender roles with my partners? Like these things are all, you know, all of these different levels interacting and intersecting how a relationship plays out. Um, so what, I, what I'm trying to kind of uh, get at with that notion of eudaimonia um, is is that really, you know, to understand what what is a good good kind of love is is to to have your eyes on a lot a lot of different things at once, a lot of different kinds of questions, all of them interacting. Um and some of them taking us really really far from what we might thought have thought of as quotes private life, right? Because you know, global political systems are not something that <laughs> originates within the white picket fence of of a couple's home, right? But it right. sure as hell comes in there with them, right? Hmm. You, know, you might think you you close the door uh, around your home, your family, your your relationship, um, but actually, you know, all of that societal baggage, all of the good or bad diamonds of your world are coming right in there with you. Um, so, so yeah, that's the that's what I ended up doing with that notion of eudaimonia, and yeah, what made it all come together for me, and what made the idea stand out to me was the old original meaning of the word itself. Yeah. Uh, beautiful. Terry. Um, I, I thought I'd share with you just because I knew you liked etymology. Um, mm-hmm. I believe the etymology for sadness starts with uh, Latin satis, uh, which means full, like oh. satisfied. Um, Interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, I I should probably like double check that because I, I I had heard that like several years ago, but I thought you might you might appreciate that just because sad sad love is sort of a full full fullness. There's a fullness to that ex- experience. It's not um you know it's not only good or bad. It's kind of everything that comes with that. So uh, I thought that it just is really beautiful. <laughs> Thank you yeah. so much. Yeah, you know, it's weird. I've spent a lot of time thinking about the etymology of happiness, but I haven't really thought about the etymology of sad before. And so, um, yeah, that's that's a really cool fact, and it really it really fits nicely with with how I think about you know love that is eudaimonic has has room for the full range of human emotions, right, including sadness. Right. Right. Yeah. What I was struck with when you were when I read about, you know, learning about eudaimonic love and um, this idea of good spirited love and how we spend our time in our romantic love relationships when we're just mm-hmm. sort of constantly, like you were saying, you know, worried about is it, are, are we failing? Are we succeeding? Are we happy? Are we sad? And we're kind of just, you know, taking all this mental energy on these things that don't mm-hmm. seem productive mm-hmm. Uh and and also rather individualistic and versus mm-hmm. this idea of collaboration and trying to grow and trying to um learn from being sad learn from and grow from those those um you know with each other uh, mm-hmm. with whoever you're in a relationship with and it just seems like at first i thought oh what a what a great way to save some mental energy but it's also when you're <laughs> describing now, it's 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 a way to divert that mental energy to something so much more 
I don't know, yeah. productive and useful. It just seems better to me. But I don't know if that's like what you were trying to get across. Um, yeah, that, that's a lot of it, actually. That that di diverting your mental energy um, to the things that make your life meaningful is mm. is how I kind of try to frame it. So so I, I try to really um, direct attention away from happiness and and the, the so called pursuit of happiness, which is. Um, you know, another entire conversation we could have about the role of that <laughs> phrase in uh, American culture and how it's gotten itself bound up with the capitalistic pursuit of, you know, um, <laughs> more and more items that we should purchase in order to make us happy. And that, you know, this, this does not work, right? This is not a strategy for an actually happy life. Um, what does tend to make us happy is, is pursuing the, the projects that bring us uh, meaning. That bring meaning to our lives um and not just it doesn't just make us happy it's it seems to also make us healthy it makes us connected to others um and and all of that involves um you know if if you um take seriously the work of uh, both empirical uh, researchers and um you know philosophers and other thinkers um broadly speaking writers um on this topic what what it involves is looking beyond one's uh, self and one's immediate concerns in some way. Um, and that could be through collaboration with others. Um, it could be by thinking about, you know, some project or creative work um, that has a, a, a bigger scale to it than just, you know, I want a new Rolex watch and a BMW, right? So <laughs> those are the, <laughs> those are the kinds of things that, um, uh, that I'm trying to divert attention um, towards those ideas around what makes life meaningful. Um, and of course, you know, that is different for everybody, right? There's, there's no one size fits all answer to what that is. Um, but asking the question that way and, and spending our energy and our time and attention on questions of um, meaning and what projects we can um, dedicate ourselves to and get that real kind of sense of, of, um, uh satisfaction from um that i think you know from from everything that i've read and everything that i've understood such as i've understood it doing my best here but from mm -hmm. what i what i get from it is that those those are the things that really um lead to you know a good life that add up to a good life nice. not to put too fine yeah. a point on it yeah they add up to a good just, life and the pursuit of happiness doesn't right I mean, just connected to that, I also wanted to understand because it's it's not it the way I understood it, it's not just a replacement for romantic love, but rather mm -hmm. just a way of thinking. I mean, we have relationships with our family members and friends that are not romantic, mm -hmm. but if we have apply this eudaimonic principle of love uh, to people we love who are we're not in a romantic relationship with, is that what you're also kind of suggesting would be a would be a a, a good use of our mental energy yes <laughs> yes Versus, um, yeah. and yes the, uh and a lot of the point here is to you know my my not very secret secret agenda is i i want to kind of dethrone romantic love um because uh -huh. we put it on this pedestal as almost like the most important the most special yeah. kind of love right we tend to devalue other relationships like friendships, family connections um, at the expense of the, the romantic bonds. Um, mm. And, you know, whenever you give yeah. someone a, a plus one invitation, you expect them to bring a romantic partner, right? Not a <laughs> sibling, not a buddy, right? <laughs> um, yeah. And this is, you know, this is a form of what um, Elizabeth Brake, who's another contemporary philosopher, she calls it amatonormativity. Um, yeah. And that's that assumption that romantic love is special, gets special privileges that we just don't give to other kinds of love. Um, and I, you know, following her work, um, I think this is, um, this is something that's really unfortunate. And, you know, romantic love, um, you know, all, all forms of love are great, valuable, you know, wonderful things. Romantic love is not all that, right? It's just one one way of loving, one kind of love. Um, right. And so, yes, by focusing attention on eudaimonic love, which is intentionally a concept that could be applied to any any kind of connection that we have with others, um, 
my my goal is is partly to stop us from focusing so heavily on on romantic love um, right. to the exclusion of other kinds, um, and you know, not just to to stop focusing on it um, in terms of you know thinking about it and critiquing it. I think that's all really important, but to stop valuing it as as if it was the the one thing that mattered for a good life or good relationships. Uh, it's actually, yeah. you know, plenty of people live very healthy, satisfying, eudaimonic <laughs> lives that do not include a romantic relationship, right? They right. have a lot of love in their lives. They mm-hmm. just don't have that kind of love in their lives, and they're not looking for it. And that is fine. Totally but, fine yeah. <laughs> despite yeah. what Plato's uh, speaker in the symposium says, that person is not broken, right? They do not have to find mm-hmm. another half to be adequate or whole. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, no, uh, you're you're so spot on with a lot of this, Carrie, and it's uh, it's it's nice to just he- hear how you think about this. And it strikes me that um, one of one of my favorite authors also may have been one of yours, which is uh, Viktor Frankl. Um, Absolutely, yeah. You use this word meaning quite a lot, and yeah, uh, yeah. You know how how is one supposed to think about meaning? Uh, I know I know that kind of idea of uh, other projects or something uh to somebody or something or a project to involve yourself with, or the suffering uh, do you see that um suffering is sort of an innate part of this this wider spectrum of love is there is there just inevitable suffering that's going to happen within these uh eudaimonic uh loving situation love within eudaimonic love is suffering a, a part of that uh, and is there is there a grander depth that we can get uh, and evolve as people through those processes in these relationships? Um, so oh, this is complicated, and there's there's a lot to that question. Um, to the first part, um, yes, Victor, I love Victor Frankl's uh, book. Uh, Man's search for meaning is, in fact the um, inspiration for my own subtitle for Sad Love, which is Romance and the Search for Meaning. The, the Search for Meaning is is uh, just a direct homage <laughs> to, to Viktor Frankl. Um, nice. So, and yes, and I, I like a lot of what he has to say about uh, meaning and how it how it works and how it functions in life. Um, uh, but, but um, you know, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure that I want to say suffering is a necessary part of love. Um, so, so for just the same reason, actually, that I want to say happiness is not a necessary part of love. And, and in fact, no feeling or emotion is definitive of love um, because I want to say love is a, a, kind of, um, a kind of container that's big enough for every human experience. Okay, mm. so, and that doesn't have to include any one of them in particular. Um, what I what I want to say is that we have certain um, we have these evaluative uh, ideas about certain emotions. So we think some of them are positive and some of them are negative. Those negative ones would be things like sadness, uh, anger is another very common one. Um, and and those negative ones, um, what's tended to happen, and more and more as you know, even over the course of my lifetime, I've seen this rise of, um, you know, largely dominated by the U.S., this um, emphasis on positivity and staying positive, being happy and, you know, practicing gratitude and going to yoga and all of the rest of those (laughs) things that are supposed to make us into positive people um, at the expense of understanding the true role and value of the so-called negative emotions, right? Those things have been really culturally suppressed and shamed, right? If you're um, angry all the time. That's that's kind of shameful. You're a complainer. Nobody wants to be around you, right? <laughs> um, and so, <laughs> I think this is also very political. I won't get into like the the ins and outs of how that all works right now. But um, the the um, the short version of what happens there is that we we devalue certain of our emotions and we overemphasize certain other ones. But really, they're all there for a reason right every emotion is valuable and if you are in a situation that should make you angry you want to get angry and you want to feel and understand the anger and and act accordingly it's it's a kind of wisdom for for, it's there for use um 
so so in you know any life and any loving relationship um when a situation arises where sadness is appropriate um you want to be able to get sad feel the sadness right yeah express it and act accordingly act on the wisdom that that emotion is offering you um so it's not exactly that it's a necessary part of love but it's absolutely necessary for love to make room for sadness right. when it's appropriate when it's time to feel sad and you know most i'm pretty, pretty sure that's everybody's going to have periods like that at some point um it is really different though from saying that it's the love that should be making you sad um and that's a claim that i'm i'm less convinced is is true right uh, that the you know love of course can lead to situations in which sadness may arise like grief is a very um mm. clear example of this i think right if you love yeah. someone and you lose them um either because the relationship ends and you didn't want it to or because the the person passes away um you you're going to experience like a lot of sadness and that will be a downstream consequence of of loving that person um and you know it, it's not it's not a necessary part of love but it sure as hell is going to go along with it in a lot of cases <laughs> um, yeah and uh, you know and just like those other negative so-called negative emotions it's there for a reason and it, it's part of our um it's part of our way of of processing and uh, allowing ourselves to um to realign ourselves in the world after the loss so it's um uh yeah i think i think that's that's how i think beautiful. about it yeah um, beautiful uh, i think uh, yeah I, I um wanted to just also kind of get an overall sense of you mentioned when you <clears throat> you came out with your own to, to the world you came public with your own personal relationships and i imagine mm -hmm that came out of when you were describing you were becoming critical of this notion of romantic love and you were wanting to perhaps use that as an, an example to, to to demonstrate other forms of, of love. And it seems like you were, you know, instead of people kind of adopting that, it seems like the opposite happened. There was, there was a lot of vitriol and a lot of probably personal attacks, I imagine, to you. And, um, it, it maybe didn't have the outcome I imagine that you had hoped um, or that, and you've, you've written it, obviously these books about it. Um, it had both. <laughs> it had both, but I mean, it yeah, certainly has yeah. sparked a conversation and I'm wondering where, how do you, where do you feel you are with that now? And you know, where we are mm. now with dethroning romantic love um, mm. and, and yeah, the pursuit of yeah. that. <laughs> Good question. So, I mean, it, it had, you know, it, it, there was a lot of reaction Um and it, some of it was 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 very positive and and you know i had a lot of really good conversations yeah. as well as the the really horrible ones and you know i got right. i got a lot of hate mail but i also get a lot of fan mail so you know it's like okay it's okay. it's it is at the very least a lot of people starting to talk about something they might not otherwise have been talking about and yeah. you know since i started doing this work it's you know like 10 years ago now the world has really changed a lot um right. around this stuff um not obviously just because me like a lot of us have been out there you know getting into public spaces having these conversations and yeah it's come at a cost for for a lot of us um and but at the same time it's come at a kind of cost that um that i think on in retrospect and on balance was worth undertaking because to me that work is meaningful so you know this is again me getting it like this stuff made me sad and people mm. respond that way to hearing um, what your life is like. It's not nice. It's not a good feeling. Um, but it felt uh, eudaimonic, even though I was really sad because I, I can see that this is um, this work is is doing something in the world, and, I, and it's something that I want to do, and I want to have this this happen. Um, so yeah, it's it it's uh, where is it at now? Um, I mean over time i think a lot of the conversations about i mean especially around like non-monogamy polyamory um public discourse has has just come on in leaps and bounds a lot more people have vocabulary now to have the conversation mm -hmm. and don't just start okay. from a place of you know saying something really offensive and then walking away like that doesn't happen nearly as often as it did 10 years ago which is great um mm. uh on the other hand you know i think there's still 
um, you know, this, uh, there's still a lot of parts of the world where um, those conversations are not happening yet. So I don't want to be um, overly rose tinted about it. Because um, mm. I, I live in, in Vancouver in Canada, which is very relatively liberal city. Right? Um, there's a lot of places in the world where I would not be comfortable going and talking about this stuff. Um, and so, um, yeah, that's, that's still, that work still remains to be done in a lot of contexts and it's still ongoing even here. Um, and I think there's, you know, there's so many pieces to this. My, my use of non-monogamy as an example is really just because it's the one I have more familiarity with, but people who are, you know, as I mentioned earlier, people who choose to live, um, in relationships that are not romantic relationships, like right? people who choose to live single life, for example, um, are still going through some of these very same conversations about mm-hmm. the, the stigma, the judgment, the assumption that, you know, if they were a good enough person, they would have a partner by now. And, you know, right. there must be something wrong with you if you haven't settled down and partnered up. That those kinds of, um, uh, those kinds of conversations are also still happening alongside um conversations about so it's like you know it's this this situation you're not allowed to have too many partners but you're also not allowed to have too few partners you have to have exactly one you know live live the uh the monogamous nuclear family dream life um Mm -hmm. and you know uh, the the bigger picture behind all of that is is this question about why we even have uh one size fits all model for for life at all right why do we have one conception of the uh, the life plan, which is basically the, the the one summed up in that playground rhyme, right? So and so and so and so sitting in a tree, K I S S I N G. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes baby in a baby carriage. Why is that the life plan? <laughs> um, and uh, it's it it really as is, it rhymes. Um, yeah, it's as simple as that. It, and we're still like we're still passing this along to yeah. the next generation of kids. And um, so I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of that still really left to unpack um, just on a very basic level, understanding that these questions are not always as private or personal as they seem. They're actually very hmm. politically charged. In a lot of cases, they're very socially um, determined. A lot of these things are socially constructed and not just the deliverances of biology, although some things are, you know, that's, there's, there's a lot of work still, still needing to be done. I think I could probably, keep working on this for another 10 years and still not feel like yeah. I'd really scratch the surface. We need to come up with a, a, a popular limerick for polyamory. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good luck with that. <laughs> um, Carrie, um, what, what is it like to be a professional philosopher? You know, uh, do you spend <laughs> your whole day uh, walking around, seeing people in love? Uh, are you thinking about uh, a lot of other things all the time. I, you know, it's it's a really interesting um, place to be. What what is that like for you? Yeah, it's a good question too. It's actually so. I mean, you know, I, I my day job is as a professor at a university involves you know teaching a lot of emails, you know, a lot of boring admin work. Um, so it's not very glamorous necessarily. Those sides of things. Um, but the, yeah, when I when I'm um, in research mode when when i'm thinking and writing um i really do get to spend you know a, a good chunk of my time well i mean reading reading a lot that's mm-hmm. that's another huge part of it um but then just like thinking thinking things through as as slowly as as and as carefully as as the issue demands and that's you know it's a real privilege to have that be part of my job and part of my work and part of my life um it is it for me certainly that's that's a very meaningful meaningful thing to to be able to do um with my with my time and um my energy um yeah i also these days i my, a lot of my writing is um uh creative in nature so i also i i studied the mfa in creative writing a few years ago and i started writing mm-hmm. some of my philosophical work now in novel form and poet poetry and um, and cool. so, you know, I've also developed this kind of sideline interest in uh, creative creative writing forms, which again, you know, enables me to spend a lot of time in, in you know, it looks like sitting in front of a computer, basically. Um, but <laughs> what I'm doing in that space, uh, inside of my own, my own mind, um, is, is um, you know, is 
is very fulfilling to me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Sounds wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> um, would love to read some of that someday, hopefully. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for, for making the time to speak to us. Uh, this yeah. has been super, uh, you know, enjoyable and fulfilling for, for us as well. Um, Thanks. Yeah. Great conversation. We, you know, we'll, we'll be happy to send this to you. Is there anywhere we can direct our audience to, to your work? Is there a, a place that you prefer us to send people? Uh, I mean, my website's probably the best bet. It's just kerryjenkins.net. Okay. Everything else is pretty much linked from there. Perfect. Yeah, thank you uh, as well. I mean, it's a, it is a fascinating conversation. I hope we can maybe do it some someday again and continue the conversation. And, and I think it's, it is nice to keep talking to our friends and family about this to help normalize these other forms of love. I think it's it's a good way to to uh, push our society <laughs> forward. Yeah. Um, yeah. I appreciate all your work and your time with us today. Thanks uh, very much. Well, well, have a great afternoon. Take care, Carrie. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye.